1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 45 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner, making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And today, we have someone who's been with the Conscious Capitalism movement literally from the get-go, and we'll get into that in a moment. Today, we are so fortunate to have Chip Conley who in 1987 founded Joie de Vivre Hospitality, a um, boutique um, hotel group that we'll get into maybe a little bit later. Really unique in terms of how he how he put that group together. Um, I remember I think your first hotel came from a concept of the Rolling Stones, but we'll, we'll dig into that a little deeper. After that, uh, in uh, 2013, um, Chip was asked to be the chief hospitality officer of another hospitality group, one by the name of Airbnb, where he spent a number of years, still works there, I guess, as a coach in some ways, shape, or form. Along the way, he's also founded the Modern Elder Academy and um, the dust Th- 300, and we can talk about all those things a little bit more. And as importantly, he's also authored several books, um, one of which I know both Raj and I uh, were heavily influenced by. The name of that book was Peak, and the subtitle was How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. So when you write a title like that, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're in the cool crowd with that. So our cool guy today, Chip Conley. Welcome, Chip.
2: A cool conscious capitalist named Chip. So I, we got a
1: Thank you, thank
2: you for letting me join you, and um, I'm honored to be with you. I'm not sure I like the number 45 so much, but I'm not going to get into politics. <laughs> um, so,
1: <laughs> well, one of the things I want to mention is that I, you know, I mentioned it just a few minutes ago when we were checking in. But I remember meeting you for the first time at the first CEO summit that we had in October 2008, mm-hmm. back down in Austin. And you were on a panel. And at that point, we were around, I think, around like a fire outdoors. It was dusk. And, um, you know, it was October 2008. And everybody thought the yeah. world was falling apart. And you were brilliant because you stepped in and said, hey, listen, I'm CEO of a company that's in the hotel industry, and I've been through hell before and come up on the other side. And so maybe begin with that sure. story of, of what you talked to us then about, about how you guys had a near-death experience and how a conscious capitalist deals with that.
2: Yeah, you know, I, so uh, I'd started, as you mentioned, uh, Joie de vivre, which means joy of life in French. Uh, in the mid 1980s in San Francisco, uh, was one of the first boutique hoteliers in the US. And we had a near death experience during the dot com bust of 9 11. So that was a few years earlier than the Great Recession. And it was during that time that I wrote my third book, Peak How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, really talking about the idea of um, how, is, how is culture creating a great organization culture. Um, maybe even a better uh, company approach to business than, you know, strategy is, as uh, I think it was Peter Drucker said long ago, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And and so um, when the Great Recession came along and I joined you uh, in Austin for the CEO summit, um, it, it wasn't like, it. Came, you know, the fact that Lehman Brothers the month before had gone bankrupt was no surprise because we, you know, the, the hotel industry, is like the canary in the coal mine we can see a recession way sooner than the rest of the mm. the industries and so we had been starting to batten down the hatches in the first quarter of 2008 but by the time we got to october when we had the summit um it we were it we were clearly in a troubled place and mm. we could see the future and it was going to be pretty dark and and but we had a we had an organizational strategy that and culture that we had developed over time. And we got to see it tested even more, more significantly than during the dot-com bust in 9-11, because the great the revenues for hotels, in especially in um, California, where all of our hotels were, dropped by something on the order of about 30 to 40 percent. Um, mm-hmm. Over over the course of um, just two two years, and so, you know, the the hotel business is a fixed cost business generally, and so when your revenues drop that much, you have got to figure out how to how to solve it. And um, we using conscious capitalist principles, we solved it. And ultimately, in two thousand ten, I sold the Chateau to one of the Pritzkers. Uh, the family that owned Hyatt, and now Joanne is known as JDV and one of the Hyatt brands.
1: Mm. And, and what was it about the culture that allowed you to react the way you did react? And maybe say a little bit about, um, about what you did. What were the things that practically a CEO facing a crisis of that yes. magnitude what do you what do, what do you do
2: <laughs> so being a Maslowian, i'm sort of a b- big believer in if you take maslow's hierarchy of needs uh and distilled it down to instead in the five levels to three there's survival there's succeed and there's transformation and if you use that pair of to look at your employees your customers your investors maybe your community relationships your vendors. You can sort of look at, okay, what's the survival need and how do you address that? And during uh, a deep recession, you better address that really well. And so for us, that meant giving job security to our employees, because frankly, you know, the housekeeping staff, if we have 30% or 40% less guests staying there, there's less need for some of the variable Variable costs, you know, but but people who have full time jobs, those full time employees may be variable costs, and the last thing they ever want to hear is that they're a variable cost. Mm -hmm. And so, the idea of how do we not lay off people for economic reasons, but we actually shave our costs in all kinds of other ways. Basically, all salary people took a ten percent pay cut. Mm -hmm. All leaders took a twenty percent pay cut. Some of our senior leaders took a fifty percent pay cut. I took a three and a half year uh, pay sabbatical. Um, We also moved all of our employees over to Kaiser Health Insurance, which was an HMO and significantly less expensive back then Mm -hmm. than than the PPO plan. So if someone wanted to do a PPO, you could do it, but you had to pay the extra. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we did a whole collection of things that addressed the survival needs. Because if you don't address the survival needs in a culture, everybody's full of anxiety. And so that brought us up to the success level. On the success level, it was very much about changing the metric for how we define success it was not are we going to meet our budgets of course we're not going to meet the budget that we created in 2008 because we didn't know the recession was coming at that time um instead we looked at market share are we growing market share because that's a relative that's a that's a way to look relatively speaking are we doing well and we were doing exceptionally well yeah the transformation part of the pyramid was how do you how do you remind people on a daily best basis about the inspiration of the work they do. And we would invite in our, at our monthly staff meetings, our guests in the hotel, uh, loyal guests who've been staying there for years to come in and tell their stories and talk about why they love the hotel and why the the hotel staff felt like family to them. Because quite frankly, in a downtime, you need to fuel people with meaning. I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And when you realize as, a, as an employer or a leader that meaning is the fuel of life, not just in, you know, your, your home life, but mm-hmm. also in your work life, um, it helps you to realize that introducing meaning and introducing inspiration to your employees is almost like, you know, feeding them, you know, mm-hmm. their lunch meal or something like that. Beautiful,
1: beautiful.
0: One of the things I loved about PEAK, uh, and I think that's where uh, you may have used karma capitalism as a phrase. Yes, yes.
2: That's Karmic something. capitalism. Yes.
0: yes. Karmic what, go,
2: capitalism. What, go, what, go, what goes around comes around. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it takes longer. Sometimes it takes <laughs> longer, but yeah, but yes.
0: And I remember you describing you know, the, the depth of the uh, uh, almost despair that you were feeling you walked into a bookstore and you kind of gravitated towards Maslow, and that reminded you of your uh, uh, days at uh, college when you had first learned that. And I think that was the turning point. And so it was very, very inspiring. Uh, tell us about the Joao De Ville, um, model that you created, because I remember the uh, the approach that you used to say, how do we create something that is not a cookie cutter? Um, yeah. Tale, right?
2: So we created 52 boutique hotels over the 24 years I was CEO. Um, and each one had a different name, different identity, different personality. So how do you create 52 different hotels? Well, the way we did that, uh, starting with the first hotel, which was a funky motel in the Tenderloin of San Francisco called the Phoenix. Uh, and we knew we wanted to go after rock and roll bands, musicians, artists, creative types. Um, we said, okay, what if there was a magazine that defined the personality of this hotel? And in the, in the case of that first hotel, it was Rolling Stone magazine. And we came up then with five adjectives that defined Rolling Stone magazine. And back then in 1987, we said th- those were funky, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. So everything we did in creating the hotel, its restaurant, which was a place called Miss Pearl's Jam House, a cool reggae bar and Jamaican restaurant. Um, Everything we did in creating the design of the hotels, the staff we hired, the uniforms they wore, et cetera, came down to those five adjectives. What we came to learn over time is that the people who fell in love with the hotel actually were people who would see those five adjectives as aspirational for themselves. So in essence, a person who loved being funky, irreverent, or cool would love that hotel. And so that's what I call identity refreshment. You you are what you eat, you are where you sleep. And the choice of where you stay uh, in a boutique hotel says a lot about who you are as a person. So in sum, I would just say that, you know, I'm a, an amateur psychologist, <laughs> I, I, you know, lo- loving Viktor Frankl, loving Abe Maslow, more recently loving people like Eric Erickson, developmental psychologist. Um, you, you know, I, it's, it's really helped me to understand humans because the truth is whether you're in B, B to B or B to C or whatever, A to Z, you know, business is about H to H, human to human. And um, I think a lot of people don't realize that. When they get more senior in leadership,
0: I think the hotel where I met you uh, was inspired by the New Yorker or Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was for people who were more bookish. The, the hotel Rex, yeah, it was. A, yeah. It was. Mm-hmm. It was all about
2: um, sort of the Algonquin kind of round table of you know yeah. a literary hotel.
0: Yeah. So the the bar was a library, and I think there were books in every room, hotel room, classic yeah. books and so forth. So yeah. yeah. What a wonderful way to uh, to, to do that, you know, to differentiate them.
2: It was also fun, to be honest with you. I think on some level I'm an artist, even though I never yeah. really thought of myself as that. And so if I had to crank out just another Marriott Courtyard, <laughs> I, I, I I wouldn't have gotten very far in that in that career because it would have, I would have gotten bored.
1: Nine, yes. yeah, stop. Don't even think of it. Um <laughs> so that's fascinating so here's this creative guy coming out of stanford business school you know (laughs) instead of going into consulting and i banking he starts up this funky uh hotel group and along the way falls in love with Maslow. i mean doesn't only like think that that's a cool interesting idea but decides to write a business book on it Mm -hmm. um say how did you how did you make that step what 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 was the genesis of making that step for you? Well,
2: I I was lucky before I wrote that book, I'd written two others. Um, The first one is called The Rebel Rules, Daring to Be Yourself in Business. And I was lucky enough to get Richard Branson to write the foreword. And I was so I had some I had some history in writing. I loved writing as a kid, but I was embarrassed that I loved writing. I felt like it was Mm. sort of a sissy, a sissy thing to do. Um, And so I getting acquainted with writing in in you know about 10 years after i started my hotel company was a nice reminder that this is something i've always enjoyed so the process of taking my maslow fixation and 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 having applied it now to my company now of course i didn't i didn't think when i was reading maslow and we're going to apply this peak theory to my company oh okay i'm going to write a book about this someday <laughs> yeah. no it was more existential like damn, I need a solution here. And um, I don't know if the business books in the library are going to be where I'm going to find that solution. And so long story short is um, the process of writing it for me, every time I write a book, it's a nine month, it's like a pregnancy. I get impregnated mm-hmm. and nine months later, a book p- pops out and um, actually it doesn't happen that fast. <laughs> the, 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 I was going to say the, that's, that's that, pretty
1: impressive. Every that, wow.
2: if, I, if I was self-publishing, it would be that case. But of course, as you guys both know, publishing world can be pretty archaic so it's nine months from the time that i might be starting to think about it to actually when i finish a first draft and then it'll take like 11 years for it to be published um (laughs) (laughs) no i'm kidding but it does take the 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 publishing industry unless it's a blockbuster that's topical in the moment it sometimes takes a year to two years from the time you have a final draft to when it actually hits the shelves
1: yeah Uh, so when you look back on your books. Is there a favorite child? I mean, using the metaphor of birthing them every nine months. You know, I mean, it, it just depends on
2: what what lens I'm using. To you know, emotional equations was my New York Times bestseller. It, that was, yeah. but it was not my favorite book. And it had a very, it had, it, it was, it was extremely popular. And then it has done, you know, okay. Peak has a long history of people who love it. And, you know, their peak study groups on that. But I would say my la- latest book is my favorite, which is Wisdom at Work The Making of a Modern Elder, which was my experience of working at Airbnb um, and what led me to realize that being a modern elder is not something to be ashamed about.
0: Well, before we get to that, uh, I would like to talk about some of those equations, uh, Chip.
2: Okay, yes. Uh, because it was
0: such a beautiful way of distilling down the essence, the wisdom. Uh, into something that is memorable and uh, and uh, and impactful and, and usable, and I know one of your favorites was Viktor Frankl: "Despair equals suffering minus meaning." And I know you had some personal
2: connection
0: yeah. to that thought you had shared with us at one of our events.
2: Well, let's yeah, let's talk about that. So so we I was at the um, CEO event in uh, for Conscious Capitalism October 20, 2008. difficult time. Uh, 2009 came along and it was just a really rough year on so many levels. Um, and I was having my own personal existential crisis. I had a handful of friends, five friends commit suicide over a two and a half year period, including mm-hmm. my insurance broker, whose name was Chip, same same strange name I have. And he was somebody I really relied upon occasionally for advice. And you know, when the person you rely on for mm-hmm. advice is actually committing suicide and they have the same name you are. Well, it, it, it throws you for a loop. And then I had a flatline experience. I, I broke my ankle playing baseball at Gavin Newsom's bachelor party. Um, and I um, got a cut on my leg as well that I didn't know about. So I got a septic leg and then I was on a, an antibiotic that wasn't strong enough. So I was on a stronger antibiotic and I was allergic to it. And I actually, after giving a speech on crutches on stage in St. Louis, I flatlined. And that was um, August 20, 2009. Um, and... In my backpack, so I was emergency room, ICU, they bring my backpack to me, you know, and my little backpack that I was, you know, like, like a briefcase kind of thing. And I, and I said, can I look in there? And the nurse said to me, no, that's what got you in here in the first place. Because at first they thought I'd had a heart attack, which I didn't mm-hmm. have. Um, but, I, but my heart stopped nine times over 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I said, no, there's something, there's a book in that bag that I wanna look at. And in fact, there was Man's Search for Meaning, Mm-hmm. In my backpack, in the ICU, where I, that night, spent the night reading that book again and sketching out a little equation, which is despair equals suffering minus meaning. And the, the, the way they think about this equation is suffering, if you have, a, if you have any Buddhist, Buddhist tendencies, and I sort of do, um, the first noble truth of, of Buddhism is that suffering is ever-present. So suffering's there. It's like a constant. It, it, it's there if you want to focus on it. There's always something to suffer about, and there's suffering in the world. So suffering is the constant, but despair and meaning are inversely proportional. The more you have meaning, the less despair you have. That's how the equation works. And truly, that next day, that was my equation. And I ultimately took that back three months later in November 2009 at our annual leadership retreat for all of our senior managers in the company, 80 people, and I taught them the equation. Hmm. That's ultimately what led me to saying, well, there must be other interesting equations out there. And, um, I went to Bhutan and studied their gross national happiness index. And that led to a happiness equation. Uh, and there's an anxiety equation and and 18 equations in the book, but Hmm. what's the point? The point is that from a conscious capitalist perspective, understanding your emotions is not something that a lot of us have been mm. taught. No, none mm. of us went to emotions One Hundred and One school. We sort of learned emotions from our parents mm. and that could be, that could be good or bad. And <laughs> I'm um, thinking about my children. Good. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if you realize that you're a role model for emotions, it does actually shift how you show up with those emotions. And mm. so the, so that book is a leadership book, but it's a leadership book, really, really dedicated to EQ, to emotional intelligence.
0: You think there would be a similar spiritual equations
2: type of uh, thing? I'm sure there would be, I'm, but I, I would say that the more ephemeral, the more the the more something is uh, mm, spiritual or uh, harder to pin down. I think the harder an equation captures right. it, right. Um, anxiety is a combination of uncertainty and powerlessness. And, and, and social science is pretty clear that 98% of anxiety comes from those two ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, but spirituality is, I think, harder to pin down. And I, that doesn't mean that an equation couldn't work, but it does mean I think an equation can actually feel potentially a little bit inappropriate because it's trying right. to make something that's imprecise imprecise.
1: Yeah, a little reductionist. Yeah. Perhaps. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The world is not a better place because religions have done that generally. So let's not go there. Um, yeah. But uh, I want to play on that string about emotional intelligence because after you sold Joie de Vivre, um you got into a situation that I think has influenced a lot of things since when you joined yeah. Airbnb and got into that. So maybe set the stage for that a little bit and uh well, the, and we'll play with that a bit.
2: <laughs> I'm going to let Robert De Niro set the stage because in the film, the, the intern with Anne Hathaway, he says <laughs> early, early in the film, and everybody loves the film. I mean, it's not an Academy Award winner, but like people love that film. <laughs> um, he's an old, he's a senior intern. She's a young CEO. As it turns out, he was supposed to be the intern, but he became the mentor. Well, here's my story. So, so, De Niro basically says in the movie, musicians don't retire; they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. Mm. So, I knew I had music still inside of me because I was, you know, I, I sold my company around age fifty. So, I knew I wasn't ready to be retired, but I wasn't sure who to share, who I was wasn't sure who to share my music with. And that's when I got the phone call from uh, from actually from Brian Chesky the co-founder and CEO, 31 years old. And actually I was 52 at the time that I got the call. And he said, you know, would you like to help us democratize hospitality? (laughs) It's a a great opening line. Um, And uh, I I, I said, well, tell tell me more. He says, well, can I come over to your house? I mean, literally the the offices of Airbnb's headquarters, which was not a very big space because it was a small tech startup, but it was growing fast. Their offices were 12 blocks from my home. So he says, he said, I'll Uber over. Now this is like early 2013. And I said, you're going to do what? (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't know what Uber was. I mean, this
1: is like the beginning.
2: (laughs) The truth is technology just lands in our lap and then we figure it out. So I, so he came over and I didn't really think of Airbnb as a tech company. I just thought of it like, Hey, people are opening their homes. So I said, yes, I'll be your mentor. And he said, I want you to be the, the head of hospitality and strategy. And, but more importantly, I want you to be our secretary of state. I want you to go out and travel the world. And, and that's really what my job was, It's really helping to mainstream and globalize Airbnb to hosts, but also to communities. And, and it was not an easy job as an ex-hotelier um, going out mm. and saying, OK, this is, the, this is the new thing. And a lot of the hoteliers looked at me like, oh, you're just an idiot. That, that idea is never going anywhere. <laughs> But today, um, Airbnb is worth more than Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, and Four Seasons combined. And so yeah. it's been a fascinating tale. I, t- I think the part that was most interesting from an emotional intelligence perspective as a leader So you know, I've been, a, I've been CEO of my own company for 24 years, and now I'm going to be reporting to Brian, who's 21 years my junior, but I'm also his mentor so my boss is my mentee now that is an unusual situation but here's the story you know we have five generations in the workplace for the first time 40 percent of americans have a boss that's younger than them if you're 55 years old 70 percent of people have a younger boss and the department of labor u.s department of labor says that um, the average american will have a younger boss by the year 2025. so the majority of americans will have a younger boss so the idea of intergenerational collaboration um, is really important. And that's what really led me uh, after four years of full time and then moving into a strategic advisor role, that's what led me to writing wisdom the work, the making of a modern elder. And in the process of writing that book at my home, I had a home here on the beach in Baja, which is where I am right now. And that's when I had a Baja aha, uh, an epiphany, <laughs> which was why not create the world's first midlife wisdom school? but we can come to that when you're ready. But um, the the Airbnb experience was just phenomenal because they started calling me the modern elder. I didn't like it, but they said, Chip, a modern elder is as curious as they are wise. And I was like, Mm. okay, if that's what a modern elder is, it doesn't, you know, it sounds like modern elderly, which sounds like AARP's magazine. Um, But I'll accept that I'm a modern elder if it's about being curious and wise and understanding the right alchemy of when to be curious and when to be wise, because Mm. Yes. <laughs> Robert De Niro joined Anne Hathaway as the, me- as the intern, but became her mentor. Well, I joined a tech company at age 52 with no no experience in the tech world.
1: Mm. And I,
2: jo- I was asked to join as a mentor, the opposite of Robert De Niro, but actually I became an intern <laughs> because in many ways I had to be the dumbest person in the room and have a beginner's mind when it came to technology, not just my own personal use of technology, but also, you know, what is a tech company? Um, mm-hmm. And yet I was also in charge of strategy. Being in charge of hospitality was obvious. There's nobody in the company who had a hospitality or travel background, mm-hmm. but yeah. being in charge of strategy for a company in an industry uh, or in a with, a with a perspective and a way of being that is like something I'd never experienced meant that I had to be open to being curious much more than I thought I would be, which was a hard one because I had to be open to looking dumb and I had to have, I had to be able to turn my fear about being unsuccessful into a curiosity.
1: Well, that led to your book, Wisdom at Work. And I, and I think one of the core nuggets that I took out, at least what I told my children I took out of it was, you know, listen, as you develop your businesses, You're going to need some wisdom and that it's actually a really interesting combination between some of these startup CEOs or these businesses that are just entering their growth phase. So maybe they're just a little bit beyond startup, but they're into that growth. They've got to scale. And um, however smart those kids are in terms of the technology and maybe even some of the market and marketing. They've never scaled a business before, one, and two, they're suddenly thrust into a leadership role that is really different than anything that life has prepared for them at that stage. And I want to use that as setting the stage for where you then take that with your book, because for me, that was the jumping off point of like, gee, isn't it just make absolute sense that, you know, there is a role for a modern elder in that, in that world.
2: Well, I, there's, a, there's so many elements here. Number one is technology has, you know, it was Peter Drucker who in 1959 said, um, knowledge workers will rule the future. And and nobody knew what the hell a knowledge worker was back then. But today, seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world are tech companies and knowledge workers do rule the world. And because um, na- digital natives have set a leg up when it comes to starting technology companies, um, often because they're brilliant at the technical side of things as a, as a you know, an engineer or a product person. Um, you see companies become billion dollar companies very quickly with very young leaders, but it's hard to microwave your emotional intelligence. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's something you learn over time. And we, are, we have been a culture that has been fixated on accumulating wisdom when all mm-hmm. of the wisdom of the world is in this little device in my pocket yet my iPhone. And yet we've spent very little time helping people distill wisdom. Mm. So we are an accumulating knowledge culture. We are not a distilling wisdom culture. And Silicon Valley has woken up to that fact. And um, the idea that you can try to pair um, young technologists with experienced um, entrepreneurs or leaders makes a lot of sense. It's a form of diversity that doesn't get nearly as much attention uh, as gender, race, and maybe sexual orientation. But age diversity on a team or in a company is, you know, I think a secret weapon.
1: And what was the role that, that Brian had to play in being open to that? Because you're a smart young thing, you've got a unicorn, and along comes, you know, Hey, boomer. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no,
2: this is a real, that's a great question because both, both of us had to, wow, we both had to, I, I had to humble myself to say, yeah, I'm going to be reporting to someone 21 years younger than me who I'm mentoring. And that was great. And I was no longer the sage on stage. I was the guide on the side. I was the person helping them, the three founders be successful as much as I could. Um, Brian had to have enough confidence in his, capability of growing as a leader that he didn't worry that there's this guy waiting in the wings chip who wants his job so he had to trust me and he had to actually have confidence and a desire to grow and his growth mindset and i'm a big fan of carol dweck's work on mindset his growth mindset was like nothing i'd ever seen in my life and so long story short is um I wouldn't have joined if I didn't think he had a great potential. And so proud of him that he's now a public company CEO with a market cap of almost $110 billion. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: Crazy. Wow.
0: <laughs> hey Chip, there, there are two uh, ideas I'd like love your uh, thoughts about. One is uh, something my father said to me the last time I saw him, uh, essentially on his deathbed. And we had had a difficult relationship over the years. And uh, his last words to me were, Raj, you are your own boss. And he didn't elaborate on that. And I said, Well, what is that? You know, that that sounds like a good thing to me. uh, I think we should all be our own bosses. I don't think anybody should really have a boss uh, in that sense, right? Because the word boss really implies certain things that actually comes from a Dutch word boss, which means master, which has is, is rooted in slavery. Right? right. So I want you to, because you've used the word boss a lot, and I know we're using it in a particular way, but what do you think of this idea? Do you think we should have a boss or what, what should be the nature of relationships, even when there's some kind of a hierarchy or vertical organization?
2: Well, in ter- I two thoughts there. Number one is I think you're your father was very wise, and, and I think that was very, you know, the, the, we, we he in essence was saying you have agency. And I think that is one of the most important things for all of us, especially in a, from a conscious capitalist perspective, is to look at how do we create organizations where we uh, believe in agency, um, meaning people are agents of change and they're agents of their own future. Um, I love something we did at Shawad Aviv long ago, which was when I was a little frustrated by some of the leadership and boss behavior I saw and the fact that uh, some of our leaders we were bringing into the company were very hierarchically focused.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For one month, we forbid anybody in the leadership team and at any level, so anybody who's a manager at any level to use the word manager, leader, or boss we only use the word role model. Mm. So when we said we're going to have a leadership meeting, we said we're having a role model meeting. Mm. And for a month, we used the the term role model. And I can tell you that from that point forward, especially for those new leaders in the company who did not realize that they were the emotional contagion of the people that they were leading, they were the role model for their emotions. um, It really helped.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's something... Uh, similar to what I heard Satya Nadella say yesterday, uh, when he was speaking with uh, Adi Ignatius at the Harvard Business Review, uh, and I, you know, he's an extraordinary leader, and what he has done at Microsoft, I think, is amazing. Yes. So he has instilled this this uh, this mindset for all leaders in Microsoft that it is about model, coach, and care. I mm. that's kind of the sequence. So you have to be the change you're looking to see, right? Model mm. that behavior that you're looking, coach people through it. But it all has to rest on a foundation of genuinely caring. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have that, it just means you're using me you know, right, to achieve the numbers or whatever else it might be. So I thought that was a, a nice distillation. Model yeah, I, lo- I love that.
2: Very simple to remember, too.
0: Yeah. Now the other thing I wanted you to react to, because you talked about being curious and wise. It kind of reminded me of a phrase that we've been playing with <clears throat> my co-author on Shakti Leadership, Nilima and I we may do a book with this title, but the idea is that we, we need to evolve. So even though you might be considered the elder and the, the you know, mentor and mentee and all of that, but ultimately our journey is towards becoming whole and embodying all of those things within us, right? So the phrase that we use is becoming the wise fool of tough love. Right? So you've, got the wisdom. you've got the wisdom, the foolishness is where the joy, the curiosity, yeah, the, uh, the playfulness, yeah right? Uh, all of that comes in creativity. You can't have creativity without being somewhat foolish, right? Childlike. That's the healthy child. Mm-hmm. But then you also have to have the tough and the love, right? Tough-minded and tender-hearted. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's your thought about that? that, phrase? Think <laughs> like that I,
2: I think you should write a book with that. <laughs> as the, as that. It, um, it's a little long, but I still love it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, first of all, there are a lot of archetypes, and I, I don't think there's any one archetype that's better than other archetypes and being, you know, the jester, or the fool is an archetype and uh, being uh, the, you know, being a magician is an archetype right, right. being a hero is an archetype. So there's a couple archetypes that you've got there. And I think those are, those are good, but I don't think that's the only way to, to be a successful leader. I think those are, those are qualities of great leaders I know, but there are other leaders I know who don't necessarily fall into that. So I, I you know, what I would, the way I would look at it, uh, I, so I, I want to say thumbs up. I love it. And I think understanding your archetype. And when I work with leadership teams occasionally, um, I have them do a little archetype test so that we can help everybody understand what's your archetype. Yes, we also can do Enneagram or Myers-Briggs There's other things. But archetypes are, I, I like them because it, it helps people to move beyond personality to almost the, the mask they wear yeah, in leadership, that they mm. fall into a lot, and whether it's the caregiver, uh, I fall in the hero a lot. Um, I, I do. I'm the magician occasionally. Um, so you know, there's. It's. I think there's a lot to be said for people understanding what archetype they naturally gravitate to. Partly because a great leadership team is well rounded in those mm. archetypes, exactly. and so you want to make sure that you've got. Uh, you know if you are the caretaker you are you you know you know that if that's what you do you need somebody who's sort of the the taskmaster Mm -hmm. um because the you know a caretaker without a taskmaster around can actually get mired in emotions um and in stories and in not getting things done but a taskmaster without a caretaker basically can brutalize people. So, I mean, ideally, as you've said, is we don't just grow grow old, we grow whole. We integrate all of these kinds of archetypes within ourselves. And that's the spectacular leaders I know do that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, not all of us are that far evolved in our leadership. And so therefore, it does make sense to have the right alchemy of our archetypes on a team. Yeah, that's great.
1: Well, that sort of leads to the Modern Elder Academy. And yes. uh, I'm fascinated, even as we're talking, I'm thinking, now, when you sat down and started to say, what should the agenda be? Like, like what are we going to teach them? <laughs> yeah. Um, how, what was that process of deciding, you know, like, to, to, to make this work, here's the kind of workshops that we think are going to be helpful?
2: Yes. And, and we really wanted to have a curriculum. So we didn't want, so I was for 10 years on the, the, the uh, board of trustees of the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. And I love it. Mm. And the books, the bookstore, there's named after me. And I just, I have a lot of affection for that place, but it's a retreat center. It's a place where people go to facilitators, bring their curriculum. There's not an Esalen curriculum. There's an Esalen ethos and way of being, mm. but there's not a, you don't go to Esalen and say, I'm going to do the Esalen cur- curriculum. Similarly with Omega, most, Frankly, frankly, most personal growth retreat centers don't have a curriculum. Uh, we and wanted Kripalu, curriculum.
1: where I was on the board for seven years. So, yeah. Yes,
2: Kripalu, Kripalu has a little bit more of one. A, l- a little, little bit more. Problem, a little bit more not, the But still, enough still the big
1: debate. The big debate. Yeah. Big debate.
2: <laughs> so we have a very clear curriculum. And that's an important differentiator for us and has really helped us in the pandemic. And I'll explain that in a minute. So the curriculum that we, you know, first <laughs> of all, having a book, wasn't Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, Helped to create something foundationally, but our curriculum really has four components to it, um, and and then we have guest and mastery f- uh, faculty who come in and do their their theme associated with this. Number one is mindset: how do you shift from a fixed to a growth mindset, and how do you actually identify your mindset? And um, secondly, is transitions. There are more transitions in midlife, and I th- I define midlife now quite broadly because sociologists have started. <laughs> Defining midlife as thirty-five to seventy-five—that's forty years. Um, how do you how do you go through some of the transitions you go through in midlife without feeling like a fool? And I think you should feel like a fool. It's perfectly fine to feel like a fool because some of the transitions you go through, you'll never go through again. Women menopause, men go through something called andropause that they don't even know exists. But there's you know divorce and changing your career and um, health crises and being an empty nester and taking care of your parents before they pass away. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different transitions that happen. And yet we have, no one's ever given us a master's in transitions. So we, we have something called TQ, transitional intelligence that we help with. Thirdly, it's regeneration and our regeneration themes relate to regenerating the soil, the soul, the community and the locale. And so we now have created regenerative communities, um, intentional communities for people to live in a regenerative way as opposed to a retirement kind of way. Um, And then fourth, uh, the fourth curriculum theme is um, reframing aging uh, and elderhood in such a way that you actually look forward to aging, which is (laughs) not something that society (laughs) endorses, But Becca Levy from Yale, who has been a a great uh, supporter of ours in terms of just knowing that in many ways we're taking her theories and putting them into practice. She's shown that when people actually shift from a uh, neutral or a negative mindset on aging to a positive one, they Mm gain 7.4 years of additional life. Everything, you know, all things being uh, kept equal which is more additional life than if you actually quit smoking in midlife Or you started exercising in my life so so this is a a really important piece and of course framed all under all of this is how do you cultivate and harvest your wisdom you know that's not one of the four because we're a midlife wisdom school so wisdom is baked into everything and the idea that we are helping people to distill wisdom is great i mean curiosity the curiosity and wisdom alchemy is curiosity opens up possibility wisdom distills down what's essential so curiosity opens up possibility, wisdom distills down what's essential. And when you have that combination and we help people to be both curious and wise through these four pillars of our curriculum, it's powerful. We've now had 2000 alumni from 28 countries come to our program and, um, you know, they're, they're, we have 25 regional chapters around the world. That was not our
1: idea. That came from our alumni. And so it's been, yeah. it's been, it's been fascinating. So build it and they will come. So (laughs) what have you learned by who came? Okay, throw open the doors, let's have a party. Who showed up? What have you noticed? That's a great
2: question. So the first big revelation was, okay, we thought everybody coming would be 45 to 65. In fact, initially we said, well, actually two big initial warnings. First of all, we were initially were gonna be called the Modern Elder Gap Year Academy dedicated to people who are coming for a gap year or coming for months at a time. We realized very quickly, the market was much larger if they were week long programs or sometimes two week (laughs) programs. And so that was one thing. Number two is we thought everybody would be 45 to 65. Well, the average age is 54, but we've had people in their twenties and we've had someone 88 years old come. So the idea of a place where you learn how to cultivate and harvest your wisdom is attractive to people at all ages. And for some people in some industries, if you're a professional athlete and you're now retired at 32, Mm. and you're helping younger athletes, you're you're an elder because Mm. elder is a relative term. It speaks to relatively speaking compared to the people you're around, you know, are you older and are you perceived as maybe wiser? If you're a software engineer in Silicon Valley putting Botox in your face at 38, you're an elder probably. Um, mm. And so, so the idea of elderhood is uh, a, um, more of a stage of life than an age in life. Um, mm. So I think that's been a key lesson. I, I, an enormous lesson that's been true pre-COVID and post-COVID or during COVID, you know, I don't, I don't even know if we're, we're, not post-COVID yet, but maybe never be mm. post-COVID, um, is social wellness. So, when we think of wellness, we often think, you know, because MEA is sort of the combination of hospitality, education, and wellness. Mm. When I thought of wellness historically, I thought of my personal sleeping, my exercise, my nutrition, et cetera. It was very eye focused. And yet the, the, the word illness starts with the letter I <laughs> and the word wellness starts with the letter we, the wet letters we. So the idea of social wellness, um, which is another way of saying an antidote to loneliness and a way of feeling healthier. The Blue Zones research is very clear on this. It's like The places in the world where people live the longest are often places where there's a deep sense of social wellness and connection uh, deep, uh, far into life. And so during COVID, we saw that in a big way because we had to shut down March of 2020. Um, And here's where it was helpful that we had a curriculum. We were able to go online with an MEA online program, which continues to this day. And it's been very successful because we had a curriculum that we could come online with as opposed to just being a facility where guest faculty come. Um, And so that helped, but it also helped show, man, people really want to connect. And that's what led to the regional chapters being started and initially on Zoom and now in some places in the world in person. People want that sense of deep connection. Um, So let me talk about about Dr. Phil Pizzo. He's a Stanford uh, doctor who ran the medical center for a long time and a medical school. And he also started the Stanford Distinguished Cruise Institute. What he's shown in in his research is that um, after age 50, the three things people most need are purpose, wellness, and community. And I think Defining wellness a little bit more broadly than just your own personal wellness, but the wellness of how you are connected to other people um, is an important part of that definition of, um, of, of, of wellness. So long story short is um, that those are the th- three of the pillars of um, MEA as well.
1: So say a little bit about the community because I know that it's now started to evolve both into a physical place where people are living in Co- right. down in Mexico where you are in Baja, yep. and now the purchase of this land that you're developing outside of Santa Fe, and that's plans right. to take over the world. So uh, you're no, heard no here first, to take over the world. But, uh, you know, say a little I, bit about I, how that jump to community and what that means and how that's unfolding.
2: Sure. I mean, what was beautiful. So, so if you look at tracking over the last four years since MEA opened. When we did our beta program the first six months, the number one thing our beta participants asked is, will there be an alumni program? That's a good sign, Mm -hmm. okay, community. Um, Secondly, once we had people graduate from the public program, now that we're open to the public starting in the fall of 2018, we encouraged them to do Zoom calls. Well, guess what? There's groups three years later still doing weekly Zoom calls. So that sense of connection was important. People said to us, "Listen, I have said things to this pe- these 20 people in my workshop during the course of our week together that I've never said to my spouse or to my family or et cetera." Um, sec- then COVID comes along, and we 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 feel the de- desperate need for people to feel the sense of connection. Um, And, you know, so regional chapters start up. That's also when people said, hey, we want to live like this year round, not just once a, a week, once a month, once a year when I go to a workshop at MEA could you create these communities? And that's what led to our first regenerative community with a regenerative farm in the, in the middle and small townhomes around it here in Baja. Um, and it sold out in, in 10 days with, no, with no, no website and no plans because it was just alums who said, that's what I want. And so that led us to to going to Santa Fe to create another academy campus, but also a regenerative community there as well, residential community. So. Um, we don't want to world domination is not what I'm open to at this point in my life. But what I am open to is being a catalyst. You know, I have spent my life really having a can do it attitude. There's my favorite book that I used to give to all of our employees. All 3,500 employees was the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And I think at this stage of my career and my life, uh, it's not about can do it. It's about conduit. And to be a conduit means that <clears throat> it's not about your own ego. It's not about your own willpower. It's actually about you as the channel for something bigger than yourself. And, you know, I'm a social entrepreneur more than a for-profit entrepreneur today. So it's not about world domination. It is very much about being a catalyst and a catalyst for others. And I think this really relates to Eric Erickson's, uh, the development of psychologist's work, where he said there's eight life stages and The seventh of the eight is the question of generativity versus stagnation. Generativity being how do you make things happen, but how do you do it especially for the sake of other generations younger than you? Mm. He also said, I am what survives me. And I am what survives me is really my mantra. And maybe, maybe it'll be my tombstone uh, because I would like to see the idea of modern elder academies or, whatever they're called. Uh, If if we can be a catalyst for others who want to Mm. create midlife wisdom schools, great. Um, If we are a catalyst for regenerative communities around the world, great. Um, Because this is not about how many dots on the map we have, it's really about what kind of ROI we are creating, not a return on investment, but a ripple of impact. Our Mm. ripple of impact is our new form of ROI.
1: So, in a sense, you're talking about uh, regenerative capitalism, I suppose, in some Ooh, form. I like that. Yes, <laughs> and um, I, I know as we've talked, you know, I you know, I really loved the idea of you know we're going to regenerate the soil, we're going to regenerate the soul, we're going to regenerate the communities, and you know that's in a rural setting, and mm-hmm. most people nowadays, particularly modern elders, a lot of modern elders live in urban settings and in cities, yeah. and and I'm. Curious as to where's your thinking going about what that model might look like if you took it into an urban setting? So I don't know, still... like maybe in London, where I, where maybe I am. In London. <laughs>
2: well, uh, so if we say that's regenerating soil, soul, community, and locale, um, I think that uh, the second and the third one, soul will happen anywhere because mm. our, our MEA programs are really about that. So the community piece of this is, I want to make sure I communicate it properly, is most people who live in a community don't really get to know their neighbors. They don't have a potluck with their neighbors. They don't go do community projects with their neighbors. They don't do yoga with their neighbors. So for us, that piece, both of those pieces, the soul and the community can happen in rural or urban. The locale can happen in rural, in urban or uh, rural, in the sense that how are we influencing the people and the place in which we're mm. located? The soil, though, yes, is a very rural thing. Although, can't you imagine that there would mm. be a regenerative community, you know, a vertical building that would have a, an urban garden on the roof mm. Um, mm. where people go up there and they each have their plot of land? And yes, it's not going to change. It's not going to create climate change solutions by having urban gardens on the roof, you know, in one building, uh, not anything like having four square miles like we do in Santa Fe right now, which will have a, you know, have a a small, a small impact, um, a small to midsize impact for that area. But the fact that soil is on your hands, you know, one thing about soil and soil. So the microbiome in a soul in a, in a Mm. soil Mm. is what makes regenerative soil. So it's the microbiome it's the little worms and that's what you know frankly when soil is in bad shape uh uh, the 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 prop actually i'm just saying. when soil is in bad shape um that's usually because of the fact that there's not the microbiome similarly in our gut it is the Mm. microbiome that has a really big impact on not just our health but probably our wisdom and our Mm. gut intuition so that gut instinct that intuition Wisdom and intuition have a lot in common. And so, microbiome is a, is a relevant piece on both of these. And you can have a microbiome in, in an urban garden on the roof in London.
1: Yeah. No, I guess I was thinking also, you know, the difference between regeneration and gentrification. Like, you could imagine going into communities, creating one of these buildings, mm-hmm. and, you know, it being a center for social impact, for social entrepreneurship, for trying to regenerate. The community, the soil, yeah. quote unquote, of the community, because you know when you look at some of these urban centers, that's what we need. It's how do we engage with the education system, the healthcare system? How do we engage with younger people? Create opportunities for them. Um, encourage economic S- development. Um, Tom,
2: Tom Morris is a Notre Dame philosopher and professor, and he says our job in life is to be be good soil, be mm. good soil. And so I would, you know, I would, I would say that we can. The 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 metaphor there is is quite relevant to what you're talking about. But also, I would just say with gentrification, gentrification sometimes has a, a real negative side to it, which is it, it is um, not making, not welcoming the people who've been there a long time and figuring out how to. Mm-hmm. Uh, incorporate them into the vision. So I would mm. just say, if, if we're doing something that has a gentrification effect, we'll do our best to figure out how to be inclusive. And, and MBA has been inclusive in terms of, you know, ha- over half our people who've come to our workshops have been on some form of financial assistance or scholarship that we've been able to give them. So that's a really important piece of this because wisdom is not taught, it's shared. So if you're mm. in a shared wisdom cohort of 20 people, and it's all people just like you, you're probably not going to learn as much. Um, Because you're going to be hearing people's stories that sound awfully similar to all your friends and family. So that that importance of socioeconomic diversity is really wrapped up in how we do things as well.
1: Another tough question, looking at the uh, continuum of care for the elderly, you know, and, you know, where does that begin? Or more importantly, where does that end within your community in terms of how you're going to address the aging
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. So you could have, you know, we could get to a place where we say, okay, in Northern New Mexico, we have six regenerative communities and one has a horse focus and one has a a focus of being an arts and cultural uh, center in Santa Fe, et cetera. Um, One of them could actually have a focus on people who need that continuum of care. Um, And, but what I will say is that the model that we have historically thought of, of, retirement communities that need the the sort of ongoing services is based upon a model that I hope we can change. And the Mm. the way I would like to change it is the following. The continuum of care historically has been your family, because Mm. you were living multi-generationally in a household. That's not happening so much anymore. And I'm not going to try to bring that back. Or we're not going to try to bring that back. But what we are going to try to do is bring a community sense such that your neighbors are the people who are helping support you. They will not be the people who are going to provide you necessarily skilled care if you actually if, you're, if you have dementia mm. or if you mm. have broken your hip. But they are the people who are going to take care of you when you get sick, or um, if you're no longer driving. They may actually be the the people who actually drive you somewhere or pick something up for you. Um, They're the people who actually have a meal with you, you know, every other week. Because frankly, if you're 80 years old and your spouse has passed away, you may be lonely. So Mm. that kind of community and that kind of neighborliness is Mm. absolutely woven into what we're creating.
1: Well, (laughs) you know. a last question then, because yes, I'm, yes, I'm curious. Yeah. Sometimes we teach what we most need to learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and sure. I'm curious, you know, in the in the three or four years of developing the mm-hmm. Elder Academy, what have been your personal takeaways? What are the a couple <laughs> things that have changed you that, that you've learned what through are going through the process?
2: Well, um, humility and patience. I mean, I mm-hmm. think those are... Um, You know, I, I, when I was CEO of my own company for 24 years, writing books, da, 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 you know, ego, ego, ego. Um, and Richard Rohr, the Christian mystic, who's become a huge fan of M.E.A., as well as uh, Carl Jung, psychologist, both said, have said the first half of your life is really about the, the operating system is your ego, and the second half of your life, the operating system is your soul. And um, it's in midlife when there's an operating system change, but most people have no roadmap or toolbox to understand what's going on inside of them. And so uh, for me, I I have seen this ego to soul uh, process that in my 50s that felt really good at the end of the day, but it required a lot of shifts in me um, and the humility was part of that. And then the patients and whatever I say, great things, that sort of noise comes on. It's
1: It's the angel. Somebody just got their wings. I just got my wings uh,
2: because I'm (laughs) soulful now as opposed to ego fed. Um, so, and then the patience piece is, you know, that's a hard one for me um, doing business in New Mexico, which is, you know, where we're moving and is, is a patient, it requires patience to do business there because things move at a different pace than I'm used to. And certainly that I was used to in the Bay area, San Francisco Bay area, but I, the, the view, the value in patience is uh, it gives you time to let things gestate a little bit and to, to, um, uh, not expect that the first idea you had was the best idea. And I think MEA has been a process of evolution um, and it's just gotten better and better. And we've had new products, our sabbatical sessions for digital nomads that can come mm-hmm. and stay and have lighter programming in an outdoor environment. That, you know, that's a that, that came out of, out, of the, out of COVID. And so knowing that it, everything's a work in progress, including ourselves, you know, that's a, that's not a bad uh, perspective for somebody who has had a tendency to try to rush to the finish line uh, way too quickly.
0: Well, Chip, it's comforting to know that we have a friend who's thinking about these things as we travel down that road. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Uh, you know,
0: we have something to, uh, you know, to become part of and look forward to. So thank you so much for this wonderful work that you're doing. And you know, I've always, from the day I met you, I've been struck by your, uh, your gift of sort of profound simplicity the way you're able to conjure up phrases like can do it to can't do it" and so forth hundred others and and your uh, deep relevance at all times, you know, as you grow and you learn and you find new lessons to impart as you as you learn you teach. So you are really truly a, uh, a precious uh, being you. in all our lives. So thank you for what you do.
1: I'm just trying to be a role model. Well, Chip, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been delightful and really enlightening. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for listening. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, then please, on whatever channel you're listening to, hit the subscribe button or go over to Apple uh, Podcasts. And over there, you can leave us a review and a rating if you really liked it. And you can always reach Raj and I by going to theconsciouscapitalist.com. And there is a place there where you can send us a message, any comments or suggestions you might have. So thank you, everybody. And thank you, Raj. And thank you, Chip. And thank you, listeners. Thank you.